Yes. All right. Good evening, everybody. Good to have you back. Now, good to have you back here on a Wednesday night. Now, I'm just going to say off the bat, I know, I can see with the audio right now, that whereas the volume is decent, I'm having a little bit of a panning issue. And for some reason, I am higher in one ear than I am on the other ear. Why is that, you might ask? I don't know. Because this is quite frankly... Quite frankly, we don't tend to uh, seek out the weird or the odd. The odd just happens to us. So I, um, if this was at the other studio with the old equipment, I would know how to adjust the panning to make sure that this levels out a little bit. But after I get off the air tonight, I uh, hope it's not too much of an auditory inconvenience to you all. I will, uh, I'll do a little bit of investigating and hopefully I'll get to the bottom of what this is now. But uh, good thing is that for Studio A update, everything that I need for the up upgrade on Friday afternoon into Friday night is here. All the physical stuff, the hardware is good. So it'll be hardware and um, and hopefully firmware, drivers, all that stuff on uh, on Friday night. And then Saturday morning and throughout the entire morning into the early afternoon, I hope to be spending time over there building up my broadcast profiles and scenes and everything else so that by Tuesday the 6th we'll be back back uh, doing shows at Studio A. The majority of the shows at Studio A. Because now I just like doing some stuff home. And I got both locations and some things are just more convenient to do here regardless of the weather. So um, that's nice. And I just want to let you guys know that's it. January 31st, 2024. Greetings to all of you on QuiteFrankly.tv Rumble, YouTube, Twitch, DLive, Rockfin and beyond. I, we have to welcome back, I'm, I'm so honored to welcome back author Donald Jeffries tonight, who just published a new book on the JFK assassination, which focuses on the invaluable investigative work of Jim Garrison, among others. And tonight we're going to talk to him, <coughs> 60 years later, there's that 100-year cough again, with whatever time we have left in the second half, we got to do a... Hey, listen, there is some... It's a never-ending deluge of crazy headlines. That's what I put in the in the um, the bio for tonight's show, and it is true. It's crazy, it really is. And we we definitely got to talk about uh, James O'Keefe. Last night, James O'Keefe put out a a little bit of a "I'm not suicidal" message. He said, "Whatever's coming out tomorrow, I just want to let you know that I don't fear death and this and that." I said, "Whoa, oh, it's going to be one of those days." Well. We could talk about a little bit what happened there. They got a top White House cybersecurity official uh, talking. Of course, it's a, another gay guy who is answering a, a grinder app. You know, I, I, I made the joke on Twitter, and it's not that much of a joke. It's for real. When you think about all of the people over the course of the last couple of decades that we went and waterboarded in the Middle East, all right, waterboard, torturing Keep people in, keeping people up all night listening to to you know uh, the, the best the the best of aqua. It is it is just incredible that all we could have done, all we had to do, was send James O'Keefe out to the Middle East with a plate of linguine and a bottle of rosé, and he would have gotten anything you wanted out of anybody. Now the other thing there too is um, 
another big uh, another big thing that uh, that we see here. You know, back in the day, most of the guys are gay. I'll just come out and say that it's very obvious. Most of the people who are catfished, I don't know, um, are gay, and maybe the DOJ, the DOD, the DHS, HHS, all these. It, I think if they're going to start with the, they're going to keep up with the diversity quotas and all that stuff. At least hire some non-horny gay guys, because I'll tell you, man, I'll tell you, they talk. They talk. You put a little bit of linguine in front of them, and they just spill the beans. It's just <laughs> you gotta you gotta rethink your inks here. So um, we'll talk about that in the second half when we have a little bit of time to read what was released by James O'Keefe, and then watch a little bit of the video. That'll be after Don Jeffries is on with us. And it's going to be, um, I think it's going to be good. I don't see why it wouldn't be. You know what I mean? Talking about JFK, it's always a good thing. Don and I have a mutual friend in John Barber, who I knew was going to be in this book. The book is called, let me get it up on screen for you. Where the hell are you, book? Here it is. One second. The book is called Pipe the Bimbo in Red, Dean Andrews, Jim Garrison, and the Conspiracy to Kill JFK by Donald Jeffries and William Matson Law. So that is going to be in the um, that's going to be in the, the the focus of the first half of the show, and perhaps bleeding a little bit into the second half after intermission. I really hope that you guys are around for that. Um, there was another big announcement today. I'm sure everybody's very very relieved about this. We're making big, big strides in being able to save the planet for future generations. That is right. The so-called Biden White House has appointed John Podesta to replace outgoing U.S. Special Climate Envoy John Kerry. That's right. That's right. Demon Hands has been has been put in charge of the climate. <laughs> What are you going to do? Really, what the hell is anybody going to do anymore? It makes no sense. But uh, the good thing is that um, today, from John Podesta's new office, he issued his first edict to fix the climate this afternoon, and, uh, and here it is. But I have discovered the secret, Henry. Hot ice. That's right. Hot ice. I heat up. The ice cubes. It's the best of both worlds. Yeah, well, the only thing I will say is watch out, Henry. Just watch out. Get out as fast as you can. <laughs> because old demon hands, he's hungry. All right, so that's what we have on that end. We'll talk about James O'Keefe in the second half of the show after we're done with Don. And uh, there's a... Another MK Ultra job cutting off his father's head and talking about the militias and taking out feds and all that stuff in, in Pennsylvania. That was pretty disturbing to see pop up last night. I did not watch the video. I will not be watching the video. Thank you very much. In fact, I, I, I'll tell you, I was out with a friend today for, some, for a quick lunch. And it just reminded me once again how if it weren't for doing what I do for work, 95% of my activity on the internet would be gone some of you I'm, I'm telling you that those of you out there who choose to inundate yourself with this stuff i don't know why you do it i think i might have a an unknown nameless faceless tumblr account still 
because there's some really good history blogs there. There's some really good stuff that goes on there. You could just be, you know, a, a faceless person that nobody nobody knows, and certainly none of your family and friends will be there. Other than that, uh, I'll tell you, it's it's nuts. And you tell me this as we go on a little bit of a break here, and then welcome Don Jeffries. Um, road deaths, people dying on the road, senseless beatings, shootings, suicides. Uh, the, the other thing that is, is popping up a lot on YouTube and elsewhere is people with terminal cancer diagnoses who are giving goodbye videos and shit like that. Uh, is anybody else getting bombarded with this stuff? I, I am cleaning it because it just gets thrown into your suggested, gets put into the reels, into the, into the, uh, into the, the shorts and all that stuff. And I am clearing out watch histories constantly to prevent the algorithm from boosting this kind of feedback loop and creating and delivering even more of this shit. It is just, you can't tell me that there's not some kind of a devious reason behind it, that they're not trying to just bring us all down a couple of degrees because, man, the highest of highs laughing at some of the best of humanity that you can see in these shorts, and then all of a sudden it's just pure nightmare fuel, and uh, that's it. Good night. Good night. Now you can go to bed. Yeah, right. Anyway, that's um, just something I wanted to get off my my chest. I, I put it out there last night, too, because it, it just, it's crazy. You can't get away from it. Anywho, that's it. Thank you so much to my sponsors, BlueMonsterPrep.com, and to everybody else on the affiliates page. Well, I'll, I'll have an announcement for you about all the, the new, quite frankly, mugs. Don Jeffries just got into the waiting room, so let's kick this one off. We will be right back. Behold, Simi, life. Real life, a thing that we have been denied for far too long. Good morning, my neighbors! Yes! Yes! Fuck you, too! You let one ant stand up to us, then they all might stand up. Those puny little ants outnumber us a hundred to one. And if they ever figure that out, there goes our way of life. It's not about food. It's about keeping those ants in line. That's why we're going back. Does anybody else want to stay? Let's run! Welcome. Welcome, welcome. It is 7.10, 7.11, something like that, 7.12. Depending on how many clocks you have and to which planet they are, um, they are synced. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. You know my, my, uh, my clock woes. 
Anyway, welcome to the show. It is Wednesday night. Everything is going smoothly so far, aside from a little bit of a glitch in the sound, but I think we're, we'll be able to survive. Um, I would like to just take a little bit of time uh, to let everybody know, especially on Rumble. Uh, if you have not been getting Rumble rants read, it's because I can't see them. I don't know what the hell is going on over there. In fact, even regular chats do not pop up for me when I go to check for them after the fact. So just let you know, if you have missed out, if I have missed any of your Rumble rants, please email me and let me know, uh, you know, what you have said in the past so I can at least address some of the things you tried to bring up to me. I am, I'm, I'm not ignoring you. Um, and you can send in those chats, the gold pills, quite frankly, superchat.com, all those, and we will get those read onto the record in the second half. All right. All right, ladies and gentlemen, so here's what we got going on right now. We are going to be welcoming a friend of ours back to the show. Uh, he's a very good friend. He's been on the show. I feel like I feel like Don has been on the show dozens of times now. Uh, we've discussed unsolved mysteries in American history, strange Hollywood deaths, the intelligence ties to counterculture movements in this country, Fortean topics like UFOs, and, of course, the Kennedys. Okay, you MK Ultra, Bobby Kennedy, a fascinating dive into John Jr.'s suspicious demise. And tonight, we'll be touching on the big man himself, JFK, 60 years after the fact. And Don Jeffries has added himself to the pantheon of authors who have compiled essential information on the public murder and subsequent cover-up of an American president. So, Don, welcome back to the show. Hey, Frank, it's always a pleasure to be with you. It's always a pleasure to have you. So... First, tell us a little bit about your, I see that this is the first time um, that you've shared the marquee with somebody on a published work of yours that I author, author uh, that you author. Tell us a little bit about William Madsen Law. Yeah, William's great, a uh, great friend of mine, a great researcher, very under-recognized. He's written uh, several books himself on the JFK. He's he's pretty much specialized in the JFK assassination, although he's done some work with Marilyn Monroe and RFK, too. He hasn't had that published yet, but... Uh, He's probably, I think, the foremost expert on the autopsy evidence. He's a real expert on the medical evidence. He, when he heard I had, uh, and my friend was uh, Dean Andrews III, my brother's friend, more likely, I had this, you know, there are some coincidences in life. And probably 20-some years ago, my brother met Dean Andrews III, and he told me, uh, you know, about him. He met him in a group, and uh, he said, yeah, this guy can't be, he can't be Dean Andrews Jr.'s son. But he was, you know, he came over to my house, brought his scrapbook. His father uh, was, you know, the beatnik guy that was played by John Candy and Oliver Sons JFK. And his father ran the New Orleans Jazz Festival. So we had a scrapbook of him with all the jazz people and stuff, and musicians. And uh, I said, wow, this is really great. So he became a friend of the family. He was at a lot of family gatherings and uh, he's my brother's best friend. So, um, I, you know, because he was a friend of mine, I wasn't sure there was a book there, but William... Uh, I said, no, you, this is a book. He's got to tell a story. So, you know, he interviewed him on the record. We included that book. And uh, uh, we just decided to make it about, you know, the New Orleans aspect, which is, uh, has gotten play in some books. And, of course, Oliver Stone goes into it a lot in JFK. But I wanted to differentiate here between what I, you know, what we call this is the ground level plot. So we analyzed that. We didn't analyze the real conspirators here. But these were all people, first and foremost, Lee Harvey Oswald who were being manipulated. Oswald was being manipulated to be the Patsy, and the rest of them were probably being manipulated as well. And, uh, you know, as I, I believe, Frank, that like Kim Garrison, that Lee Harvey Oswald was on assignment at the time of the JFK assassination, was told to infiltrate a group that was plotting to kill the president. And that group would have included all those people in New Orleans, all the anti-Castro Cubans, David Ferry, 
Guy Bannister, Jack Martin, all the people that you saw in uh, Oliver Stone's JFK. But I, we wanted to take it deeper. And I think people will look at that and see the connections. Clay Shaw, I believe Clay Shaw, uh, who was only, pretty much the only one left alive for, for Jim Garrison to uh, bring to trial. I think that we, we showed, demonstrated in the book that he had some incredibly powerful connections. Operation Paperclip in World War II. So I think he was the conduit between the ground level plot and the real conspirators were probably in the Pentagon and the CIA and you know, everywhere else in the deep. Uh, you, you, when you say you go deep, it's true. And this is the fastest I've read a book. Uh, and because of how fast I had to read it, uh, there's, there's probably a, a lot a lot of minute details that I have missed out on uh, that I, I have to go back and, and read a little bit more leisurely. But uh, let's start from the beginning for people who, who don't know. Um, Jim Garrison and Dean Andrews, our, our, our mutual friend, John Barber, he's been screaming it for years. Jim Garrison yes. solved the case. <laughs> Yeah. And and to see that that quote was in the right in the beginning of the book. For those of you, uh, for those who don't know, could you please give a little bit of a background of Jim Garrison, especially and how he came to pick up the mantle of this investigation? Well, Garrison was the DA of New Orleans, and uh, he on the uh, day of the assassination, or the day of the assassination, he actually questioned David Ferry. And all a lot of this is in Oliver Stone's JFK. So you can see that it very very memorably. Uh, told him that he took this very strange, you know, very long road trip to Houston to go, uh, you know, ice skating. It made this, The story made no sense. As Kevin Costner said, you know, they have a simplified story hard to believe, you know, and, and he certainly was. But he subsequently dropped it, and uh, he didn't think much more about it until he, as you see in the, in the, in the uh, movie, he was uh, talking to Senator Russell Long, who, of course, is the son of my all-time hero, Huey Long, the United States Senator, and he's the one that uh, got his intentions said, hey, you know, that Warren Commission, you know, it's, it's, that's a bunch of BS. And uh, so it, it aroused his interest because he remembered David Ferry. And then when he started reading the, the testimony in the 26 hearings of the it's like a lot of it later, uh, he, he was really uh, interested in the testimony of Dean Andrews Jr., who was a friend of his. It's Dean the third, you know, would told me many times, you know, Jim Garrett's would their house and say, hey, hello, young Dean. And, you know, they used to go to the New York Athletic, I mean, the New Orleans Athletic Club together. So they were friends. And that's reflected in the uh, conversation that's uh, between John Candy and Kevin Costner. That's where we got the title from the book, where he did Pipe the Memo in Red, you know, check out the chicken red. And uh, people have asked about that title, but we thought it reflected his, uh, his you know, his unique beatnik lingo. So we also included his Warren Commission testimony in the book because it's I call it the Beatles of the Warren Commission testimony because most most of the testimony in the 26 volumes exhibits is just falsely grading. It's boring. It's meaningless. It's just padding the record. Dean Andrews Jr.'s testimony was, is great. Really interesting. It's riveting, even without the beatnik language, which makes it even more interesting. But after he saw his friend, who you know he had known Dean for a long time, and he said, well, this guy's talking about he got a call because, again, he wasn't stooped in the case. And, and Dean Andrews Jr. got a call. He was in the hospital on the day of the assassination. He gets a call on, later on in November 22, 1963, from a Clay Bertrand, who he knew, and uh, what most of us believe now was Clay Shaw, but who asked him to represent Lee Harvey Oswald. Now, he had, Dean had represented Oswald as his attorney during that summer. And I personally believe, I think that Dean Andrews Junior was being manipulated like everyone else, and he was he was maneuvered into that position of helping Oswald, supposedly with his dishonorable discharge and uh, things uh, to do with his wife's immigration status. But 
And that's where Dean was also sucked in there with the, what he called the gay caballeros and all the, the uh, gay Latino kids. Again, yeah, I, I believe that the whole Cuban connection, I'm alone amongst the researchers. Nobody else thinks this. I believe that it was a smoke train. They were only in that New Orleans level, and they only interacted with what I call the ground-level conspirators. And I think, you know, Dean was sucked into that, and that's probably why they picked him to call him. I, I really can only speculate, and that's, I think, Dean struggled for the rest of his life to figure out why they called him as well, mm. because they had to know they were going to kill Oswald two days later. So I I really don't know what that call meant, but at any rate, you know, he he was sucked in, and, uh, you know, for the, that destroyed their life. And the book also talks about, you know, the background, especially talking to Dean and Zerd about what, what these kind of things do to people, to, to the families, and the families destroy them. And I met his Dean's uh, widow, who's uh, still alive, like 96 or something like that. She came to my house for dinner many years ago, and first time she talked to a, a researcher, and you know, she just, I tried to, to make her understand that your husband wasn't just crazy. He, was, he, he, he knew what he was talking about, because behind the scenes, and that's what the book reflects, is Dean, young Dean III's revelation that his father, although he committed perjury, and participated in the attack on Jim Garrison and lied about everything. It's, but he was doing it to save his own neck because he knew all the people that he had killed. And he said, one time he said, you know, I like to breathe, you know, with these great statements. And uh, so, but behind the scenes, he was incredibly paranoid. He thought they were going to get him. He was locking his house when his youngest son, who just, you know, Dean's younger brother just died tragically a couple months ago after a lifelong battle with drug abuse. And I, frankly, I think it was because of what they went through. And, and Dean, Dean the third himself has told me, you know, Hey man, I would, you know, I could have, I could have led a good life. They were leading a good life. He was in law school and this disrupted everything. So it's a story also just kind of to, to some degree of how families get uprooted over this. And we see this yeah. in other issues. Oh, what it does to them. But, uh, so hopefully, you know, people, uh, so much has been written about the Kennedy assassination, but I think we took a deep dive into an element of it that hasn't been explored enough. Should it? Uh, it was definitely a lot of a lot of new concepts for me, which also made me go and reconsider things I already knew, things I've read in the past, and that I had open ended questions on. And before we get a little bit more into Oswald, uh, as you document in the book, events like this. Um, whether it be JFK, 9-11, anything else. they It's not only just about, in this case, taking out one person, but it becomes a colossal marker, yes. a colossal marker of sh societal shifts where life never truly is the same for anyone afterwards. And there are, you're, there are usually in those cases a number of people who go missing or have strange things happen to them to shore up yes. An official story, and to leave a, only a few meaningful detractors behind. And usually, those meaningful detractors that are left behind are just subjected to a lifelong of slander and libel to be punching bags, so that everybody right. else can see what happens to you. And and uh, and of course, so people can always ask that question: Well, if he's really got the goods, why is he still alive? Although a couple of people are usually left yes. alive. So, can you oh. talk talk about some of the people who have disappeared in bringing the JFK investigation to new levels over the decades? Well, I mean, there's the the, the, body, the JFK body count is it makes the Clinton body count you know, amateurish. We know how big the Clinton body count is, but uh, although the Clinton body count continues to grow, you know, but uh, the JFK count they pretty much wiped out everybody that they needed to. But I think uh, after the assassination, something like 18 witnesses who were really integral to some aspect of the assassination died unnaturally in the first three years after the assassination. At the time, I think an actuary gave it. You know, the odds, uh, although later they tried to revise that and say it couldn't have been that, but it was certainly high. It probably had to be at least a billion to one or something like that. 
And uh, again, if you read these tests, Ken Jones was a writer that uh, who uh, wrote the Forgive My Grief series that uh, he was the first one to focus on mystery tests. And in fact, he, he should probably be considered the father of body counts. He was a little, you know, editor of a little paper out there in Midlothian here in Texas, uh, who was a, a journalist who was trying to actually do Uh, But when Garrison came, Garrison's witnesses not only being killed, you have people, of course, David Ferry, who was probably his most important witness. I think Ferry would have been central to his case more than Clay Shaw. And you can see in the movie, Joe Pesci, you know, playing Ferry, you know, he he was really that paranoid. He knew he was going to be killed. And he ends up dying, you know, supposedly of natural causes or whatever they claimed it was. And he had two typewritten suicide notes. I guess he knew he was going to die of natural causes. I mean, so this is the same night. Same night in, that he died in Florida, Eladio Davali, again, one of the many Cuban characters that are, you know, that are in, integral to this, what this ground level conspiracy was, all being manipulated. He was found with a hatchet through his head. Hmm. Same night. So, you know, that, that, that's a double exclamation point. And at the same time, we have other, you know, lesser witnesses that had one already died. I Bannister was, was killed before Garrison could question him. He died of a heart attack, supposedly. Um, and you had... Uh, you know, you had people that uh, are, you know, and we talk about uh, the other deaths in the book, but you also have Garrison was being stymied not only by the media, but incredibly negative. I mean, think what Trump, some of the coverage that, that Trump has been. I mean, Garrison was really subjected that the entire mainstream media was against him. It was one attack piece after another, and he didn't have a social media or anything to fight back on. So he was he was the victim of, you know, really, really tremendously bad uh, <clears throat> press coverage. Well done. Uh, around halfway through the book, um, you talk about a woman that you were able to interview personally, and you conducted yeah. this interview just last summer. Her name was yeah. Gwen Siegel, and you said that yeah. uh, her, I think her her mother said that straight up, everyone who knew Lee Harvey Oswald died, and that's why they didn't want to talk to anybody. Yeah, Every- yeah. Well, that's that, that's probably the most the, one of the biggest exclusives of the book is I was able to, and you know. Frank, uh, from doing this for so many years, and I have uh, a couple of researchers to help me out a lot, Peter C. Kosh and Chris Graves, that, that, that really find information, get contact information on a lot of these people. And whether it's 9-11, Oklahoma City, or certainly JFK, JFK Jr., any of this stuff. And when you try to call them, 99% of the time, the phone numbers you get have been disconnected. I, I have to think that's way above the national average, you know, the numbers that are listed on 401. So I understand it's difficult, but this this phone number was for uh, Ed Vogel, who was Lee Harvey Oswald's best friend in high school, and uh, if you he was also in the Civil Air Patrol with him earlier, and so he he knew of David Ferry and everything, and he I knew he had died suspiciously at like age thirty two, uh, right before the House Select Committee on Assassination, or shortly before that, and uh, he died at the Alvin Oxner Clinic, Louisiana. The Oxner Clinic, and we go into that a little bit too. Where I don't think people have examined that enough. Oxner was a was a close ally of Clay Shaw. The Oxner Clinic was known primarily servicing third world dictators, and they got sick. They flew to the Oxner Clinic. Uh, but you know, this guy uh, Ed Vogel, the Harvey Oswald's best friend in high school, wandered in there, and he died under very strange circumstances. And until I contacted his family, we didn't know what his family thought. I don't want to give any spoilers, but yeah, you're you're right. I talked to his um, originally Gwen Siegel. That was his. Uh, Niece, I believe, and then she hooked me up with his sister, Sweetie Pie and Cookie. You know, those are their real names. Wow! <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> so I talked a lot to Sweetie Pie, and uh, they're boy, they're just uh, they're crackerjacks, man. They were they were they were they were very bold, and 
So I said, you know, most of these most people are terrified to speak out. But you're right. It's everybody knew we heard guys will die. And uh, well, his family obviously thinks he was murdered. And so nobody nobody has even talked to these people or thought about that before. But that's what you know we like to do. You know, like to go deeper into it and uh, show how how deep the tentacles are and how much they affect. Because I'm not sure what he could have. What a lot of these witnesses could have done. I don't know, but but obviously someone thought they were in the way. And so you had the people getting killed like that, and you mean no longer there for Garrison to call. You had witnesses that were you had Julianne Mercer, and again they show her in Oliver Stone's JFK. He does a lot of a good job of portraying a lot of this, where she's scared. She's frightened, and she's the one that saw uh, Jack Ruby walking up the grassy knoll in the morning of the assassination. And uh, you know, so it's, it's, it's pretty much bombshell testimony. And uh, and she's the one who also said that she was shown a picture of Jack Ruby before he killed Oswald as one of the suspects. So these are these are the kind of witnesses. And I we tried to track down Julianne Mercer. I think she's still alive. Possible. You can't. She's gone into deep hiding. But she, that, Garrison's movie reflects that. She was terrified. To come testify. Uh, other witnesses were hiding in states. And and again, this is unprecedented. We've seen it kind of recently where DeSantis actually threatened to protect Trump in Florida when he went, you know, of course, Trump, it's usual, you know, didn't stay there and went to New York to face the music when he could have stayed protected by DeSantis. But back then, uh, it was an automatic when a, D, when a DA, especially if something like the investigation of the murder of the president of the United States, it's automatic for for a governor of another state to extradite a witness that they need. But not in this case. You had Governor Ronald Reagan of California who refused to extradite witnesses. And you had Governor John Connolly, of all people, who were shot in the assassination of Governor Texas who refused to extradite witnesses, along with the governor of uh, Ohio and other places. And wow. We go into that book, and these were, these were important witnesses. So Garrison was left with not much of a case, unfortunately. Because, uh, you know, after, but he, he, he wanted to try to do something. And I think he still did a good job of proving Clay Shaw's involvement in some way. But uh, the, the, the jury was, you know, the, the public relations campaign against Garrison worked. And uh, after that, he kind of, and then we talked, I talked to him about Clay Shaw's strange death itself, where Clay Shaw died uh, again in strange circumstances. Uh, right as Jim Garrison was on the eve of uh, being reelected. And uh, what happened is it's when his his body was his body was found after a neighbor reported that an ambulance drove up to his house and took a body out of the ambulance and put it inside. This that neighbor was never located. I don't think but that was the story. And um, however it worked, right after that, you know, that was right before the election. Garrison's numbers plummeted, and he ended up being defeated after all the negative news, the rehash of you know his. Uh, his, uh, you know, harassment of poor, you know, kindly philanthropist Clay Shaw broke the news, and uh, you can imagine what happened there. So, but, but Garrison, and he was pretty much uh, out of the public eye until our friend John Barber became the first person to interview him. Oh, the, after- the, the, there's so many parts in that book about John and uh, and Garrison that are uh, that are incredible uh, to pick up. And, and 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 like I said, you don't want to give away too much because I want people to go and read the book. Yeah. But I would love for you to talk about something else that I just did not know was such a hugely odd string of coincidences, I guess you'd say, that would that would pop up. And that is the NASA angle. Uh, Oswald yeah. working at this coffee company for a few months in 1963. Uh, yeah. Gar- and Garrison uncovers that almost everyone who worked with Oswald at this Riley Coffee yeah. Company 
yep. went on to work for NASA. What? So <laughs> that, that is some weird stuff. Is that the extent of the NASA appearances in this timeline of events, or, or even if it is, it's weird. Yeah, no, it is, and that was one. Of, Garrison's investigation has so many elements to it. He did a lot of great work. His investigators were, were really good. And much, you know, much better, obviously, than the Warren Commission and the FBI, who didn't try to investigate anything. They were there to cover it up. But Garrison, he he found he, when he went looking at the because uh, he was trying to track where Oswald had worked because he had a series of you know, dead end jobs where he didn't tend to uh, to stay there very long. One of them was the Riley Coffee Company, and we, I go and we go to the book about the Riley involved here. Had some strange connections himself, and you know when he's working at Riley Company, Coffee Company, that's also where he was seen. Uh, supposedly uh, taking a bag or something from what looked like from an agent a, a couple of so um you know that was an important place that he worked but when garrison when they went to check his the employment out they found that almost no one was left even though it had only been like uh <clears throat> four years i guess and uh but that was strange enough but the fact that they'd all gone to the same place and i, I wrote about this a little bit i touched on it in hidden history first nonfiction, but when we go deeper to it into it here and uh you know the connections are just everywhere and uh there i mean you know two people with dubious connections to david ferry and so Patrol. they're you know they these guys end up being roommates living next door on dauphine street to clay shaw i mean the, the connections are everywhere and it's for people to think that these uh these guys didn't know each other is is ridiculous and so and you have to figure okay we don't know and that's why i think what differs uh the way i look at things and william agrees with me i think but um and I again, I think these are ground level conspirators. So I don't think Clay Shaw was a mastermind of the assassination, and certainly all the rest of these guys, especially the anti-Castro Cubans, because I've said many times before, I think these Cubans were a smoke screen. They're everywhere in New Orleans. They're all around Oswald, and and these people, Barry, and all these people. And, uh, but I think they were there to divert people the wrong way. I, I think it would be kind of like um, people looking at Saudi Arabia for 9/11. Mm. Like that, I think, I think it's the door, maybe, or another element, maybe the mafia for JFK. But because look what happened if the goal of killing Kennedy was to, uh, you know, topple Castro in another Bay of Pigs or to, uh, you know, to, uh, to, to, uh, you know, take all way, a relations away with Cuba, then what happened after the assassination? Cuba died as an American political issue. Cuba, there was no second attempt to kill the CIA stopped trying to kill Castro. OBJ never tried to do anything. Nixon never tried, and Castro outlived them all. So if that was their goal, they had to feel like it was a horrible failure. And so, but I so I think researchers should make a mistake looking at that. I think it's the evidence is clear that all these Cuban characters, they were sent a lot of them were centered around Dean Andrews Jr. in the office where he was he was their attorney doing whatever. Whatever he was doing for him, and what was he doing for them? I don't know. Were they all told to? You know, that's just my speculation. But they may, they may have all been manipulated as Oswald. You know, Oswald was manipulated. He, and in this book, we talk about Ann Bichler, who William became a friends with. And Ann Bichler is a forgotten uh, researcher who uh, was uh, part of Garrison's staff for a while. And she talks about the fascinating investigation they were doing in New Orleans, where they were looking at the Oswald impersonation sightings in New Orleans. A lot of people know about the ones. Uh, that uh, Oliver Sun portrayed a couple of them in JFK, where he was, you know, firing range and shooting at the wrong target, and uh, going and driving a car when he supposedly couldn't drive a car at great amounts of speed, and then telling the guy, uh, giving him his name, of course, saying, I guess I'll have to go back to the Soviet Union where they pay workers enough to buy a car. 
He was dropping that Oswald name everywhere, but it clearly wasn't Oswald. Well, the same thing was happening in New Orleans. So he gets drunk in a bar and throws up and makes a big scene and drops that Oswald name everywhere else. But Ann Disner was uh, was the one that was uh, really working on that. And we have a you know a nice uh, a transcript of a talk she gave at a conference a while back that she's been forgotten. So um, I think we you know we came up with a lot of stuff. I think that other researchers haven't looked at uh, as closely as they should have. Uh, yeah, that in particular was very odd uh, with 1961, where because it's one thing to say me yeah. in 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 my my rudimentary understanding of what's going on there, we know in in the the hours leading up to his death, one of the great one of the biggest things he could tell the press was I'm a patsy. So uh, you, you wonder, okay, well, how is he being done? Uh, how is this being he being set up? And the fact that. We in this book that you that you put in there that back as far back as 1961 that yeah. there are reports of people who were impersonating an Oswald, yes. and I said it's so or were they really laying the groundwork that far in? I mean that's only a year yeah. into Kennedy's uh you know term. Yeah. So yeah, well there you have you have people you have John Armstrong has a whole Harvey and, and uh, Lee theory, and I, I don't subscribe to all of that. I know John, I've had him on my show, and he but he's you know. He he spent a lot of his own money, and uh, you know, for and some of his research is great. He's the one that proved that Lee Harvey Oswald, the young Lee Harvey Oswald, was registered in two different schools at the same time at I think eighth grade or eighth or ninth grade in Texas and uh, New York, I think. So uh, impossible, obviously. And he's the one that found all these recognitions. And he talked to Ed Vogel or Ed Vogel's family and people like that. But I get well, I guess he actually didn't talk to the sisters or anything. But he he mentions Vogel and pe people like that, and. Um, because it's, there's so much reason to believe that and, and you have the memo from J. Edgar Hoover from 1960, I believe, where he talks about there's, you know, we're, we're concerned that someone is impersonating Oswald. What? In 1960? I mean, how, why did this Marine hit? So, that, so that's when you have people like John Armstrong. His theory was that there was an Oswald project and it involved two guys, one, one from Russia, one from Texas, who were kind of lookalikes, look enough to, enough to fool people. And uh, they were used in, for whatever they were just in, uh, incorporated in nuclear intelligence, kind of an X-Files type of thing as, from the time they were children. I, I don't know if I believe that, but there's if you look at the pictures of Lee Harvey Oswald, there, there's a lot of differences. When the late great Jack White, who didn't get enough credit as he should have, he put out a big video presentation called The Many Faces of Lee Harvey Oswald. If you look at that, you'll see. You know, sometimes he looks like he has a big bull neck and uh, other times he, he looks like the guy. The, uh, in this theory, the person that we we know as the patsy would have been the Russian born kind of thinner and uh, didn't the other one, you know, kind of looked uh, tougher because we had that reputation again. But so there's, there's so much that can, and that's why this, you can get involved in the minutia of the JFK assassination. And you feel like my, you know, my co-author Wayne Laws spent a lot of time on the medical evidence, which you can get involved in that. You can study the secret service. You can, there's, there's so many elements that you can go down, but, uh, you know, we wanted to concentrate on this on to try to differentiate between what we think is the, the ground level conspiracy, and I think that's taken a lot of attention away from researchers. Yeah, where they act the, like this is you know these were all these people were all being manipulated themselves. Yes, Jack Ruby went back to as a gun runner for Al Capone as a youth. He had lots of dubious connections. Obviously, he was some kind of mobster, but he obviously was. I mean, what, what how could they have compelled him to shoot Oswald? You know, how how did how do you do that? So. Um, I think those are the questions that need to be looked at. These are, these are obviously powerful players because that group, anti-Castro Cubans and 
rogue elements of the CIA, mafia people, they couldn't get the media 60 years later to still be, you know, coming and still be defending the single bullet theory and having people like even King write ridiculous, you know, books about it and saying Oswald did it and calling Oswald a little shit and all this stuff. You know, I, I, I went over that in history, you know, what I think of that guy, but and there are lots of people like that, you know, actors. And so they just, that's what made Oliver Stone so different is that he really was the only one in Hollywood came out and, and took the different tact and said, hey, this is, although I, I will say for, I don't like anything else about him, but Rob Reiner, of all people, the meathead, has been producing a series now about Oz, and he he apparently, you know, is, is pretty good on it. I've watched the whole thing from what I've heard, and that's kind of shocking knowing the rest of his politics, but give credit where credit's due. Oh, yeah, I know, and, and I'm, I'm glad you, you brought this up right now in this interview as far as motives, because motive is where... It is like the biggest fork in the road for most people who sit down and talk about uh, the Kennedy assassination, because, of course, you know, like I said before, they eliminate one guy. But really, we have been made to live with the world that came after that death and the motives there dime a dozen. You know, people say that it's self-preservation move by a national security state still in its infancy and that uh, and that Jack Kennedy was talking about smashing the CIA into a thousand little pieces. Uh, there are theories about him wanting to bring us back to sound money. There is aversion to war, like you were talking about, Cuba, Vietnam, the expansion of what it says essentially Operation Gladio. Uh, it, and, then, and then, of course, Don, it even goes into UFO territory. There was going to yeah. be UFO disclosure. It was a little bit of like a... Uh, you know, a, you know, I don't know, because he's just right after Eisenhower. But um, that's the whole thing, you know. Anything, but and I see that there's a little bit of overlap in some of that. Maybe a, a few of them could be, could be, uh, you know, sure. meritus, meritus. But uh, but it seems a lot more plausible than what we have about lone wolves and magic bullets. Oh. So so where are you with this? You know, as a researcher and as somebody who is analyzing other people's work uh, and also doing a lot of firsthand, um, you know, interviews yourself. What do you think it is? A combination of things, and um, what does your gut tell you? Well, I, I think again, I think Oliver Stone got it generally right when he said there was something in the air, and I, I think you had people. And again, I, I can't prove any of this, but I think that if you look at the Pentagon, I don't know anybody like him in the Pentagon. The top Dennis Curtis LeMay, the guy they based Doctor Strange Love on, certainly hated him, and he had a lot of power. Alan Dulles in the CIA had to hate him because he fired him at the Bay of Pigs. You know, he humiliated him, uh, and we know he hated him. Just like Stephen King, I think he called he had called him that little shit the same thing. Stephen King mimicked Alan Dulles, I guess, you know, decades later. But uh, you had people like that, and you had whoever killed him had to have, and you had McGeorge Bundy in the White House, his national security advisor. I've, I've talked about this before. McGeorge Bundy uh, wrote, drafted the National Security Action Memorandum 273 the day before the assassination. Uh, if JFK had ever read that, he would have fired him on the spot. No question, because he JFK had just signed National Security Act Memorandum 263, which uh, Oliver Stone talks a lot about a lot in this film, which delineated the withdrawal process for Vietnam. And he talked about the first thousand troops out by the end of the year and all troops out by 1965. So this was, you know, this was a huge shift. And obviously the Pentagon, which already hated him because of the Bay of Pigs and the Cuban Missile Crisis and its June 1963 speech at American University, which I think is the greatest speech ever. American president, where he looked at our enemies in mortal terms. He, he said about the Soviets at the time, hey, you know, they love their children. They breathe the same air. No, nobody had ever done that before. We always try to demonize our enemies, and we still do that. So it stood out like in stark contrast to anything any other politician had said. 
on the subject. So they actually despised him. But George Bundy had to know that he that the, the, the memorandum he signed the day before the assassination completely contradicted JFK's recent withdrawal uh, efforts, and of course led the way to escalation. And of course, Lyndon Johnson was only too happy to sign it. So I think he, you have to consider him a conspirator because why else would he? He, nobody would have written that knowing his boss would fire him. He wouldn't certainly wouldn't approve of it. And then I think you have to look at the Secret Service. Uh, someone in the Secret Service got those guys to stand down. Yep. They didn't do their job. And that's why, you know, unlike unlike most critics, that's the first people. I believe if there had been a real investigation, that's the first people you would have grilled. You would have built, you would have grilled uh, driver William Greer. And you would have said, you know, what does your training tell you when you hear gunfire that you'd slow down or stop the car? And turn around and watch watch the the uh, the target's head get blown off, which is what he did. Now, aren't you trained to accelerate out of danger? He didn't do that. Uh, and Roy Kellerman was sitting in the in the front seat next to uh, Brewer. He was supposed to jump over the seats and, and uh, camouflage JFK, which is what Rufus Youngblood did a few cards back with LBJ. He did his job. And of course, the the agents on the backup car, which was you know less than 10 feet or so to the limousine, they could have sprinted there in a couple of seconds, and they had six seconds to react. They did nothing until Clint Hill ran belatedly after the final headshot. Uh, so that if I'm conducting the investigation, those are the first witnesses I call and say, what, what happened? And of course, we know that all of them were out, most all of them were out drinking until four or five in the morning the night before in violation of Secret Service uh, protocol. So that's where you would have began a real investigation. But of course, there was this wasn't a real investigation. So I think you have to look at who the mafia couldn't control, the anti-Castro Cubans couldn't control the Secret Service. So I think the, this was a conspiracy hatched at the highest level. Yes. And if if they're you know again we talk about the Illuminati, whoever you want to say is in charge of it. I mean, Illuminati I think is a kind of a cover. I mean, people could say the Jews, the Freemasons, everybody has their suspects. They think run everything. But I prefer kind of an all-encompassing term like the Illuminati, that, you know, people that are at the top, people that you don't see, that are, you know, people don't even know their names. And I, I would suspect that's who gives the approval for these things. And maybe they, you know, maybe attached to the Pentagon, to the CIA, farmed out. I don't, I don't know the details, but all I know is that they, they went to a lot of trouble to accomplish it and even more trouble to lie about it. And, uh, you know, we, we know, William certainly knows better than that, the, the, uh, happened in the, with the medical evidence and I think so you ended up with body alteration theories and all this stuff because the evidence is that crazy oh yeah you, you know oh I'm going to ask you about that too in a second but but since you got there you're talking about real investigations and even if you did conduct the investigations who's going to listen because there's obvious um, media uh, recruitment operation mockingbird and uh, and this this is the this is the uh, the event that gave birth to that official term conspiracy theorist. So can you talk a little bit about state-sponsored obfuscation of the truth? Because uh, among, yeah. among all of that, we know that the CIA not only was, was planting that, that uh, seed of consciousness of conspiracy theorists as people you should stay away from because they're just dangerous thinkers, right. but we know that there is a lot of actual planting of theories into the public that uh, that would that are easily what like you were saying with LBJ. Here's a quote actually from Richard uh, Francis Richard Connolly who said the notion that LBJ was the criminal mastermind behind the Kennedy assassination is simply another disinformation falsehood dreamed up by the CIA. He was mo mostly uh, most definitely involved in the plot and offered up yes. his personal hitman Malcolm Wallace to be part of it. But the men who masterminded the plot were. 
He says, Alan Dulles and David Atlee Phillips with George Bush being the most important figure in actually executing the plan. So, uh, but but again, there's a lot of people like, oh, it was LBJ. He wanted to be president. Does LBJ really have that kind of swing? That's that's what I always ask. No, and again, yeah. I think that, uh, yeah, and LBJ, certainly, I, I have strong opinions about him. And he, he was the first figure that uh, got my, was seven years old when he was killed. And I heard my father said, Johnson did it, you know, say, I absorbed all. You know, mm-hmm. everybody in my family. So it was so obvious the way he acted, but clearly he knew about it ahead of time and he approved and was only too happy. You know, Richard Nixon later had a great comment where he talked about LBJ said, I wanted to be president too, but I wasn't willing to kill to do it or something like that. Yeah. Mm. But uh, but I mean I I don't I don't think Johnson now I think he would have, but you know, if he could have, but he they, you know, he had to have somebody more power. LBJ whatever his legacy was it, you know again 60 years later you're not going to have people in hollywood everybody covering up because of lbj you know that's just silly so the, these are forces again that i think above it all and we don't even understand that run everything and um but i think lbj certainly knew and i there's a lot of good people that think he was the, the primary mover but i i don't i don't think he i don't think presidents have that kind of power i mean maybe later on when you talk about the clinton body count and everything uh Certainly some of those people in Arkansas and stuff, they probably have autonomy to do that on their own, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I think that in this case, when you're talking about controlling the Secret Service, controlling uh, Bethesda Naval Hospital, all the all the powerful doctors there, and and controlling uh, you know, the FBI, CIA, everything, and the media, most importantly the media, I just don't think that LBJ had that kind of power. And certainly, although he hated Bobby Kennedy too, you know, I, I'll have in my upcoming book, I'll have, you know, the American Memory Hall, which will be on a few more. I'll have another one out there. It's like hitting nice. three. I'll have, have a lot more in JFK, but there's a, I'll just give you a teaser. There's one scene that I didn't know about where OBJ was supposed to, when, when Bobby Kennedy was shot in since 1968, you know, he lingered for many hours. And supposedly OBJ stayed up all night in the White House, pacing back and forth and calling people and saying, is he dead yet? So uh, I think that, you know, <laughs> that tells you something about the character of the guy. But these things are all connected. So I don't think LB, LBJ wasn't around, for instance, to orchestrate the assassination of JFK Jr., which I believe was an assassination. And again, I think that uh, these things are all connected. And that's why JFK is so important, because if JFK hadn't have been assassinated, RFK never would have been. I don't think there would have been Chappaquiddick. I think it was Teddy Kennedy's political assassination, and I don't, I, JFK Jr., wouldn't have been assassinated. So I think these things are tied together. And that's just one, I guess, one with, with you know, the, uh, octopus where Danny Cazalero talked about the octopus. It's, it's just one pinnacle of the octopus is the Kennedy thing that has all these connections. And, and that's the way you can look at a lot of these issues where they have connections. It's like a domino theory. So if you can, if you can show the truth about one of them, dominoes start to fall and that's why they fiercely you know, <laughs> stop you from saying the truth about any of these things. Yes. Yeah, and, and so so I, I would say it's somebody like you who has done so much work into uh, pining through uh, Jim Garrison's work and, and all that, he was not the type to really get around to naming individuals. He's just more so his work stands to prove that whoever was the head honcho or the top counsel of it all, there was a very, very concerted uh, group of organ. There was organizational efforts to make sure that this went down and that it was covered up because of course, like you said before, the investigations are, they're not, they're not legitimate uh, by any standard. And, um, but, but the, he never went as far as saying George Bush or Alan Dulles are talking about individuals. No. And then, and Garrison was, he was, uh, again, he was busy 
trying to uh, stave off, uh, you know, the, the greatest media attack that uh, anyone had ever seen before. But he, you know, he he did. I, I won't give the spoiler, but in the book, he did tell John Barber who he thought the, the man behind it all was. I'll, I'll tease that. But it's in the book. Okay. Uh, kind of surprising name. People recognize it, but uh, I don't know that I agree with it. But again, Garrison did lots of work on it, and his interest was trying to. And I think as although he, you know, he did say lots of things, and they're always interesting. But um, in my case, all I can do is talk about what I did. I think William feels the same way I do. Is I, I don't theorize at all, and there's no theory in my books. And uh, other than this, I think it can be shown that the what we talk about here is the ground level conspiracy that's separate from what I think was the real conspiracy to kill JFK. Because what's interesting about that that group of players in New Orleans is that all of them would have participated. In and there's you know there's accounts of David Perry saying we got to kill him and and. And Bannister and, and so forth and all, all these people play Shaw. I think all of them would have willingly participated in a plot to kill Kennedy if they could. They weren't powerful enough. No one was gonna, you know, trust them to do that. But, but the only only person in that New Orleans group that wouldn't have participated was Lee Harvey Oswald. He's the only one that had a favorable opinion of JFK. There's nothing on the record to indicate that he opposed JFK and anything, whereas the others despised him. Hmm. Uh, okay, so then here's one last. Uh, now, um, I would love to hold you over to the uh, on the other side of the intermission. Would you stay with me for a little longer? Sure, sure. Okay, so then before we get there, because we have about six minutes until we get to intermission, I want to I want to throw a theory in your lap because you were talking about body alteration theories, which is something that I mean I talked to John Barber about uh, one of the last times he was on. And uh, he never really he never really touched that, and I didn't expect him to. I just wanted to see what he thought about it. But you bring up fairly fairly early in the book, Officer J.D. Tippett. And yeah. the, the official story of Tippett is that Oswald was initially arrested for killing Tippett and then charged for killing Kennedy right. later on. But for other people, Tippett is the subject of a pretty compelling, if, I, if, you, if you're to ask yeah. me, body switch theory. Because he, that yeah. the, the theory that he was killed uh, for his resemblance to Jack Kennedy and his body was then used to present wounds, body wounds, that I would actually support the official story of a single bullet. Um, obviously, you know about this. What are your thoughts on it? I'm, I'll put a picture of Tibbet up while you speak. Well, these kind of theories are really, uh, and then I, I have a lot of people, and they, they support me on Substack. They're really very big supporters of mine that, that think Jackie Kennedy killed Kennedy. Now, that's that become a new popular theory. And uh, before it was Bill Greer, the driver. And so, I mean, I, I guess I can see some resemblance to JFK. I, I just, you know, again, I don't theorize. And, and I'm, I don't discount anything, like I said, because uh, the the official story is impossible. So, however, whether it's the Tippett thing, whether it's George, you know, I, I have a guy that interviewed on my show that thinks George H.W. Bush was a gunman no. in, the Dal in the Dallas Records building. So, I, you know, all of that I, I don't think is very likely, but I think they would probably get people that are less, uh, you know, have less notoriety. But... I think all of them are, are, are one of them are as unlikely as Lee Harvey Oswald killing Kennedy. That's what I look at. I don't. I don't think the impossible. The official story is impossible. So anything that uh, that works around that and tries to find the answers, I think, is a good thing. I don't. I don't scoff at any theories. I, I don't. I don't buy those at all because I, I don't know. You know that I have a theory. Other than I said, I think that this was a conspiracy involved. Uh, however it played out, it was it involved the. The, the greatest powers in the, the government and maybe private industry at that time. These are the most powerful forces uh, on the planet, I think, that took 
I, I think you're right there. And for, for people who seek out this kind of these conversations, these books, and they want to read and they want to study and they want to speculate as well, uh, it, they their particular understanding of the situation becomes very personal for them. I had somebody like stop talking to me because I did not believe that the driver killed Kennedy. Yeah. That, that it wasn't the driver himself. And like you said, does it actually even matter at this point? To the point, yeah. the point is they said that a single bullet coming from behind Kennedy killed him. When we know just from the Zepruder film, he grabbed his throat first and then his head blew back into the left. It's just like, they, so we have at least two shots on camera that are coming from the front of him. That's all you need to know. Everything else is just like, we're going to squabble over this. They're lying to us. That's, right. you know, so it's it's a great point there. All right. So ladies and gentlemen, we got plenty more to do because I, I definitely want to throw a John John question in there uh, to, to to Donald Jeffries. Uh, Donald, I'm going to mute you temporarily. and We'll bring you back in just a, uh, a, a little bit. It's only going to be about two minutes or so. Uh, ladies and gents, you know what to do. Please follow us over to pilled.net. The link is below or quite frankly, .tv, all powered by Foxhole and Pilled all the time over there. No paywall, no nothing. And we get more time with Donald Jeffries. So please hop on over. It's been a great night so far and plenty more coming up after this. The rest of the show is available exclusively at pilled.net. Follow the link in the description of the episode. Get signed up. It's that easy. Or head on over to quitefrankly.tv. Just press play. No paywalls, no censorship, no strings attached. So head on over, quitefrankly.tv, powered by Foxhole and pilled.net. It's intermission time, folks. Time out to press the like button. Thank you. Ladies and Welcome to intermission. We'll be right back. Quite frankly. 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 Quite Quite frankly. 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 Quite 
Alrighty. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome. Oh, no, I didn't mean to do that. Well, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. We're on the other side of the intermission now. I hope you've been enjoying yourselves. I'm going to get into your super chats in a little bit just to make sure that uh, you didn't send anything. That would actually be a really great uh, question for our guest tonight. And that is Don Jeffries, who is still with us. Don, are you still there? Yes, sir. There he is. There he is. We've been having a great time together for years now, Don. We're friends for years. We can say that now. Absolutely. Lots of people tell me that they discovered me uh, on your show. And our mutual friend says, shout out there to Susan Olson, who played Cindy on The Brady Bunch. Our mutual friend, she's watching. She's a huge friend on you. She's got a big crush on you. I guess she likes me okay, too. So she's watching. Oh, I love Susan. And I also i am so appreciative of you for linking us up. It's really been wonderful, the uh, the people you meet over the years and the things that we all do. And and Susan has left her mark on this show already. And I'd love to have I can't wait to have her back. Uh, this year, sometime. Uh, it's yep. been too long. All right. Uh, yeah, I got to talk to her about psychedelic mushrooms and, and the Christmas link at some point. That's, uh, she she was really great in that respect. Um, okay, so let's just jump into something else. Uh, we talked about Tippet. We talked about stuff like that. Um, now I want to get into... I wanted to get into a little bit more of of the... Uh, oh, you and I did an awesome episode with John Jr., John Jr.'s suspicious death. Now, knowing what you know about the family's history and the, the fact that the same machine that killed his father and his uncle has only ever grown stronger, is there any doubt in your mind that John John was preemptively removed from the board? No, none, none. And, and the more I investigated, again, I was I think I was the first one. Well, with the, in the originally, the, you had the only people to investigate it were the original group uh, of uh, few guys back in 99 and one of them john hankey who i've had on my show a couple times john denardo so these, these guys were did a, did a great job john Dee quinn also had on my show and uh, i built on their research but i when i when i conducted my research for hidden history on it i had talked to jfk's uh, high school girlfriend and i talked to a member of his adult entourage and both of them told me the same thing that uh Behind the scenes, JFK Jr. was obsessed with his father's assassination. He was reading the same books I was. Wow. Ironically. And uh, it, and he alone amongst the Kennedy family. And uh, the rumors kind of whirled that uh, that was a source of consternation with his sister, Caroline, who was far different person than JFK Jr. And clearly had no interest in it. And uh, it was a source of contention between them. And, um, you know, it's it, it, but this. And, of course, there's Wayne Matz, an investigative journalist who told me and it said publicly that he would set to meet with JFK Jr. Uh, he was going to start working at George Magazine, right, around the time he was killed. And uh, his first assignment as investigative reporter was going to be JFK assassinated. Just imagine, he's killed, but if he lived, imagine the impact nationally of his George Magazine investigating his father's assassination from the point of view where he presumably he would have come out of the closet at that point and said, yeah, you know, I believe it was a conspiracy way before, long before RFK Jr. did. So um, I think that's obviously why he was killed. But in, in the, my book, upcoming book, The American Memory Hole, How the Court Historians Promote Disinformation, I'll have a lot more about JFK Jr. and so many other subjects, but uh, we have a lot more. And I, I, uh, I ended up hearing from the Coast Guard petty officer who conducted the interview at the 9.39 p.m. phone call that they later said didn't happen, where JFK was awaiting landing instructions and said everything was fine. And that was the exact minute, 9.39 p.m., that they claimed his plane went into a death spiral into the water. So uh, clearly they had to get rid of that. 
And uh, people, again, I don't want to spoil it, but it was a very um, contentious exchange of emails between me and this guy, where I was finally able, the first person to track him down. And uh, it's clearly he was, there's no question that JFK would have been, uh, I think he, he would have had a bright political future. Because, of course, he, he also was in New York, and you know, there's the, the Clintons come into play, the Bushes, everybody's got their theories. Was Hillary wanted to be senator? Was he, did he knock him off? Did Bush knock him off because he was president? You know, again, I don't look at it uh, in those terms. But again, I think these things are made, these decisions are made way above that, uh, way above that pay grade. But uh, yeah, but now we have another candidate, RFK Jr., that's running for president, although he's kind of disappeared. He seemed he's, he's really just dropped from sight. But uh, he was everywhere, but he's you know, publicly saying the government killed his, his father and his uncle. So, I don't know. I guess you can do that now and uh, don't care because it, it doesn't seem – doesn't seem. I mean, he's got, he's got bad press, as you would expect. But, uh, you know, he's, but he's also, you know, he's, he's toting up to Israel and he's basically waving an Israeli flag. And I, I guess that hasn't moved the meter at all for him either, so. Interesting times. Oh, it is. It is. And I know that, the, I mean, I don't know if it was the last time you were on or the second to last time you were talking about RFK Jr. Because, you know, when he was at the height of his, I should say, popularity over the last year, it was when he was doing these high profile interviews with people like Bill Maher and breaking down the assassinations. Yeah. Uh, especially going into, I mean, he, you want to talk about uh, John John being obsessed with his father's murder. It is yeah. obvious that Bobby yes. Kennedy Jr. has has studied his father's demise to the millisecond. I mean, yeah. it's uh, it, it's incredible. So that's what I wonder with John John is, was he, could he have been eliminated just because he was a male heir or did he really express any intent to seek justice down the line? I guess, uh, I guess we have our answer to that. Well, no, we do. And uh, like you, uh, you know, just to tell and again, I, I, I disclosed this in hidden history. People have publicized, but uh, JFK Jr. Is, he attended the White House Correspondence Center in uh, 1999, you know, shortly before he was killed. And uh, his guest was Larry Flint, publisher of Hustler magazine, who had also already been shot within a wheelchair and was offering a million dollar reward to the real killers of John F. Kennedy. And of course, kind of to throw even more mud in the water. Larry Flint also published naked photos of his mother, Jacqueline Kennedy. So, I, you know, then why, I mean, that shows how strongly he must have felt about the subject. I, I don't think that he would be in the company of this guy. So uh, Jimmy Carter's sister also was very close to Larry Flint, by the way. But um, so these are the kind of tidbits that I like to find because I think they're interesting connections. And uh, I think they tell us more about what really is going on politically. But I'll, I'll have more about JFK Jr. In, in, in the upcoming book. But people, if they haven't read it in history, I have a long section in there about it. And uh, we, you know, we talk, we go over all the reasons why, you know, it, it, the, the story they passed. I mean, the weather was fine that night. I contacted Eugene Meyer, who was the, who wrote the official weather report for the FAA that night. Yeah. And, and nobody's going to know. And he was pissed off. And first he was, he publicly condemned the media for promoting disinformation and said, you know, it wasn't hazy. He was qualified to fly. The weather was fine. And he reiterated it in the email to me. He felt even more strongly about it years later. He really resented the way the media misrepresented it. So uh, uh, these these things are, you know, I I guess I've kind of cast myself in, in this role. But uh, I, there's, there's just so much out there. And that's why you get to the point where, where I am now and where millions of Americans are, where 
you just, if you hear anything from an official source, you just, let's be kind and say be skeptical. But I, I personally don't believe anything that I'm told at all. I mean, I, I just assume, in fact, I just assume it's fake or a lie until proven otherwise. Especially when it starts becoming more and more personal. I mean, it's personal enough to be able to actualize and, and really reflect on what the assassination of a president means, and then, of course, 9-11, Gulf of Tonkin, things like Like, what are they doing to all of us? That is a worldwide collective attack. But when it becomes more and more personal, like I know I know, COVID was very personal for you, especially with the, the, uh, the death of your brother, and that was the subject of your, your, last, uh, your last published work. Um, where, where is there, where do we put our faith? You know, in in worldly institutions, especially the press, oh, government, yeah, there's nowhere to put that. You know, so yeah. I, I understand 100. percent And you know what, Don? I want to thank you for again for being on here because every time you come on, we always have a really cozy, even though they're usually dark, cozy topic to talk about. And yeah. you are my favorite type of author, and I really appreciate the stuff you do. I love that I have a small, growing collection of your work on my. Uh, on my uh, my shelf over here, and I hope that more people go out and do it. And I'm glad that you got more coming. So that's uh that's great. Now I I have your I'm gonna get your make sure you your Twitter along with the Amazon link to pipe the bimbo in red is in the description there. But is there anything else that you want to make sure people know about where to find you? Please Substack. My my Substack is growing. Uh, I'm getting a pretty big following there, and it's the only place I'm not chatting about on the internet. Okay. Uh, it's, it's Donald Jeffries at substack.com. Called I Protest, just like my weekly live streaming show. But I mean, that, like Masking the Truth, you mentioned that book is the most shadow banned book in the world. Barnes and Noble just it's just taking it off their site. No explanation. It's not there anymore. And, uh, you know, Apple Books is asking $999 for it. So they're doing everything. Libraries, are, it's just, it's a, I could, I, I have written about it before, but uh, that's, that's what we're up against. So Substack, at least for now, is a, uh, is a free speech platform and uh, let's hope it stays that way, but they don't, you know, they don't restrict anything I do. And my presence is growing there. So if you want to support me, go to Donald Jeffries.substack.com, become a subscriber. That's a pay option if you're so kind, but I offer everything for free. Okay. So there you go. Donald Jeffries.substack.com. Uh, there is the, 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 the Twitter. I'll make sure that I put that out there. And then also we have your link to the Amazon. Is there anything else you want to leave people with uh, Donald? It's been great to have you back on. It's always great, Frank. Anytime you want me, and uh, you know, I just I, when you mentioned about what we can do, I think I think that I, I have no argument with the. I mean, I have no argument to con, uh, contest what the anarchists say anymore. I've got a lot of anarchist supporters. I have no argument for them anymore because there is no there's no authority worth pressing. I'm not an anarchist yet, but I think that this is a spiritual battle. I have great faith and I in God, and I think that's ultimately what that's all all we can do you know have on our side at this point is to know we have righteousness on our side justice and truth american justice you know like superman you say but we, we have faith in god because this is a spiritual battle that's what i would urge everyone to to look at it that i'm with you as well i had a lot of anarcho-capitalist friends about 10 years ago that looked at me and said frank I know you call yourself a minarchist and whatever, but you'll be where we are very soon. And I'll tell you, it, there's a little. I have a couple of logistical hangups, uh, Don. I, I just think that you know you can reduce society and the structure that we give it oh, to a certain degree before our natural inclination to organize just comes and becomes more expressed. Obviously, local organization better than large national governments, but. Uh, right. 
uh, yeah, I, I'm there. I'm, I'm, I'm walking that same path with you. And uh, thanks again for the, the evening you spent with us tonight. Oh, thanks, Frank. It's always a pleasure. All right, take care. There you go. Donald Jeffries, author. You can find him in all the places that we just listed there, and I'll make sure that it's, uh, it's in the, the description, in the description of the episode. In fact, I'm going to make sure I put that sub stack in right now before anybody complains and tells me what kind of a bad job that I've done. What have I done? Hold on a second. Can I do that? All right. And in the meantime, I'm going to take a really quick break. When we come back, it's going to be your. I want to read a little bit from from a uh, a page of well, from a page of the book, and then I'm going to take your calls. It'll be whatever the hell you want to talk about. This I want to do uh, a little bit of time on the uh, James O'Keefe revelation, and we'll have a little bit of fun to close out this one. We have about 45 minutes together, so that should be nice. Don't go anywhere. Our enemies are innovative and resourceful, and so are we. They never stop thinking about new ways to harm our country and our people, and neither do we. Dread like Bob, so rock steady. But no spaghetti with meat sauce, maybe salads with one toss. No bread of the sorrow, cause I'm afraid to see tomorrow. It's religion, never suspicious, it's too delicious for the tone. See the lungs breathe the natural high, just like the shirts are so lovely. So ask Marco Polo, and I never go solo. Because I roll with the crew that keep the funk flows. That make you dance until the sisters take glance. I hope you find romance. took my legs. They took my legs, Aurora. Hello. If you guys knew that, but Matt, uh, the Koreans did took take Matt's legs. They're gone. All right. Okay, ladies and gents. So I, uh, I made sure during the break that I had enough. Listen to this. This is a little excerpt from the book, and it has to do with our friend John Barber. I actually tried to make myself a mental note to call John today and let him know to watch tonight, but maybe I can send him the link afterwards. John Barber became the first person to interview Jim Garrison. This is on page 222. 
John Barber became the first person to interview Jim Garrison after the Clay Shaw trial. For three and a half hours on September 5th, 1981, Barber explained, quote, We all talked for about six hours. Often, he would tell me to turn off the camera and the mics because he didn't want to speculate on camera. Barber has told the story many times of how the media managed to defame Jim Garrison right under his own nose. Quote, I was fired from my own show, Real People, by George Slatter. After I had tried unsuccessfully to tell the story of Jim Garrison on one of Schlatter's shows called Speak Up America, Barber told us. And George Schlatter had re-edited part of the Garrison story to deliberately libel Jim Garrison. And what he did was, when I interviewed Jim Garrison, I asked him how many shooters there were in Dealey Plaza. He said, John, there were three teams, probably two men to a team, Two of the teams in front, one in the back, probably the Dow Texas building. None of the book, none at the book depository. The book depository is just where they pre-located the Patsy. He said that because it was an important killing. They probably had a third who was a radio operator. And then I asked, how many people do you think actually knew he would not come out of Dallas alive? This is, this is John Barber asking Jim Garrison. And Garrison said, well, the plan to kill him began on the day that John Kennedy refused to provide air support at the Bay of Pigs. That's the day it started, he said. And it's all on a need-to-know basis since this was the most important killing of a head of state. So I would say 32 people knew, including some in the media, because they were infiltrated by the CIA and Project Mockingbird. And of course, that turned out to be CBS with Walter Cronkite, Mike Wallace and Dan Rather. That's why whenever Dan Rather speaks up on Twitter and goes off about Trump and the danger to democracy, uh, those who know give him hell for being one of the freaks, one of the spineless slug freaks that helped nurture the American mind into accepting the bullshit story about the murder of an American president. Whether or not, JF, you know, because we get we get caught up into the romanticism of JFK having his life snuffed out that we don't really spend a lot of time analyzing his policies. Uh, he was still a, you know, still a liberal, you know, the, the, the guy wasn't a, uh, compared to a, a Republican in 2024, he was probably, you know, uh, Patrick Henry, but, um, but because of this, we don't spend a lot of time looking at that but think about that I, that was one part that really stood out to me on page 223-222 uh, when it comes to Operation Mockingbird again and the 32 man team which you know what I th we've watched it many times but I think after the show tonight uh, for after hours programming I'm going to put JFK to uh, JFK to 9-11 everything is a rich man's trick up on the uh, on the uh, the after hours again it's a it's nearly three hours long and I gotta just tell you again there are things about that video I I do not care for. All right, I think that the 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 narrator, the director, I, I read a little a quote from him before. That's uh, Francis Richard Connolly. Uh, he does a he goes out of his way to he goes out of his way to really under not underscore I should say um, downplay the actual threat of communism and 
the origins of communism, which, you know, if anybody follows Robert Sepper, he just did. Robert Sepper's last two releases, especially on communism um, and Zionism, is incredible. It's just chef's kiss, okay? So if if I do play JFK to 9-11, there's, there's just things in there that don't sit right. Talks a lot about right-wing fascism and, like, the specter of communism, using communism as a reason to go and do one thing or another. Uh, it, it's all collectivism, and communism is a very big part of why the world is messed up. But there is a story behind communism that he doesn't go into. Although... Like I have played in the past, the reason why I like playing it is because I think that the breakdown of the assassination, the coordination of teams, including the Cuban sharpshooters, the, uh, you know, the, the Frank Sturgis types, the Sal Giancana types, you know, that that ever increasing uh, marriage and strengthening marriage between the United States government, the powers that control the United States government and also the organized crime world, that there was very little and little, there's less and less and less that actually differentiated those worlds. So I, um, actually, here, listen to this. Here's another uh, quote from Francis Richard Connolly I thought was pretty interesting. In the immediate aftermath of the assassination of President John F. Kennedy, the American government came to the conclusion that a lone gunman had changed the course of human history by killing the most powerful man in the world with three rifle shots fired from the elevated window of an office building, and for half a century, they have stuck rigidly to this fabrication while critics, scientists, playwrights, and poets have produced books, essays, and films to prove beyond any shadow of a doubt that this version of our history is a physical impossibility yes yes but every every 15 years or so somebody somebody's going to get into the white house and release the jfk files oh they're going to wait until george uh, george bush senior is is uh, gone so they can release the jfk files yes please these are the same people that want to lock up uh you know pfizer clinical data for for centuries so and it's all the same players just different generations the rules are the same all right I just wanted to throw that out there. The lines are open, 914-200-0269. Take a couple of your calls, and then we'll get into the, we'll get into some of the headlines because there's crazy headlines out there, crazy ones. Jay Britz says, another great show. Thanks, Frank. Well, thank you, guys and gals. I'm sorry about the, I don't know, it's either your left ear or your right ear that is lower. I'm going to have to give the, the, um, the computer a restart. It's the only thing I can think of to restart the computer because nothing else is making any sense. Never happened before. And that's what happens. Things that never happened before just happen out of nowhere. So thank you so much, Jay Brits. NJSF on the Rumble Rants said, James O'Keefe, master, master of disguise. I know. What disguise? He put on a pair of glasses. You would think that James O'Keefe's face, oh, James O'Keefe's face would be plastered all over the walls of every major government building and NGO as if he was Black Bart. Okay, you would think that his face, wanted, look out for this man, would be there. Sometimes appears with glasses on. It's like, you, you the fact that this guy fell for James O'Keefe in a pair of glasses actually uh, exonerates Lois Lane all those years for not being able to recognize Clark Kent as being Superman. 
You know, we, we everybody makes jokes about Clark Kent. The only difference being that he has a pair of glasses on. It's like, oh, you you really didn't know the same frame, everything. You really didn't know, Lois. You sure about that? You sure about that? Let's take a call. All right. What's going on? You're on the air. Who's this? This is Chris. 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 Oh, Chris from Dallas. Welcome to the show. How you doing? Hello, Francis. Hello. I was just calling. I live in Dallas, so obviously I like the JFK. And to me, the Daltex building is the most probable uh, spot. If you look at where James Teague was, the first fire, the first shot hit the curb. If you look at the Daltex building, the lower level, that's probably where you got the first, the second shots. So I'm all for the uh, the Daltex building theory. I don't know how you got the shots into uh, Conley's wrist, but if you look at the back shot from Kennedy, maybe even the head shot, the Daltex building is the uh, it's the perfect shot. And if you listen to the podcast, JFK, um, The Enduring Truth, he kind of goes through all of how the people in the the depository building, I don't know how you would have got from the sixth floor down. They were redoing the the floors there so that I kind of go with the Jim Garrison theory there. Okay. You know, have you ever given any, because if I play JFK to 9-11, everything is a rich man's trick after the show tonight. The one thing, this is the place, this is the documentary where I was convinced, at least to a reasonable extent, that the kill shot did come from the sewer, that there was a marker right there at the sewer, that it was the, that it was the final line of defense. Because the way that this is all set up in this documentary is that there were several teams of shooters all over the place and that there were at least three to seven shots it was almost like a shooting gallery that that it was just ricocheting off of everything, and they 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 weren't hitting him. I'm I'm surprised that other people didn't get killed that day. And of course, if everybody had phones in their hands, this would be a much different story. But um, but that all these shots had missed, and then finally it was those last lines of defense, everything that was coming from the front, one through the chest, and then one right at the uh, at the the manhole cover, the sewer grate there. Um, did that theory ever make you wonder at all? Well, I I shoot news, so I was down there on the 60th. I've been down to Dealey Plaza many a times. I've you know I've had guys who went down in the sewer, and you look at that angle, it couldn't have gone over the door. If you look at from where the jump seat is and where Kennedy is, and it's coming from the back through him, and the podcast I had, I was like, well, if it came from the back, there would be some kind of damage to the windshield and then you find out well listening to this lately that yeah there was damage to the windshield that it came from the back something came and hit the windshield from behind so i don't know where that you know would have gone and then again if it came maybe something came from the picket fence i think that would have hit somebody on the other side of the plaza so you know to me it's like where did the bullet go afterwards when it's the one for james teague you can see that went right by kennedy and hit the curb and hit james teague at the triple underpass another one probably hit kennedy and in the back i don't know but the one from the sewer the angle and the car door and where it was and you kind of sit there and you're like i don't i don't know how you would how you would physically you know feasibly do that is it you can see uh, behind the picket fence yeah i could maybe but then it would probably hit 
Jacqueline or would hit somebody as from that angle behind the picket fence. Is the storm drain, is is it the, the original storm drain? Is it in the original spot over the last 60 years? Had it been covered up, moved, replaced, anything like that? I don't know. I mean, I don't think it has. You know, they say the X isn't exactly where it was. The sign's now gone that covered up as a Pruder film, but the whole, pretty much the, you know, infrastructure, the pergola, it's all all the same. I don't think they would have gone in and redone the sewer, but I don't, I don't know. Okay. Well, you just get down there on the, uh, the anniversary and you got people getting in sewers and they're getting, you know, they have all sorts of theories. So I will, I appreciate your call, Chris. This, this is wonderful, especially since you are from the area and you've been there, obviously uh, I've, I've never even been to the state of Texas. So it's, it's really valuable to have someone like you calling in. So thank you for this. I listen to you every night, man. Love it. Thanks, oh, Frank. That, well, keep make it, sure, make sure, make sure it's not the last time you call in. Then, okay. I will. All Thanks. right. Take Bye. care. Yeah, I, I wish that some of those parts in the movie were isolated so that we can watch it together. Um, hold on, JFK to nine eleven. Uh, everything is a rich man's trick. Assassination sequence i i don't i don't know maybe maybe i can just even find hold on no no that that would have been a long shot anyway to get a viable portion of that out of that long long thing i'll just i'll just play the whole thing tonight you guys have probably seen it before and that's the most telling thing uh the the, the body switch myth is all in there just things to consider and perhaps you can, you know, argue and debate amongst yourselves. But like I said, regardless of what details you disagree on, it's obvious horseshit. That's the only thing that matters. We must stay stand united in that respect. The official story is nonsense. Okay, let's take another call. 219, you're on the air. What's going on? Hey, Frank. Uh Last week, you had a ghost town line. I yes. couldn't get through to it. Okay. Uh, you open to it? Yeah, go ahead, please. Groovy. Um, I, I live in the Midwest, and uh, one of, as part of my job, I had to go out and assess land. And uh, a lot of the time, uh, when I went out, I found old junk piles and stuff. And it wasn't like a ghost town like you see on the Brady Bunch or things like that. But when you came across a uh, a pile of an old homestead, and you see little broken dollies and little old Tonka trucks and um, things like that, and you dig through it, the, the most heartbreaking thing for me was finding old photos that had managed to survive underneath the filth, still in the frame, broken glass, and and it was somebody in the picture, and nobody will know who it was, and you know, and that changed the way that I walked around the land, and I had to place a monetary value on it, and I had to place, and part of my job was placing an ecological value on it. But at the time, um, it hit me really hard uh, because, you know, 
these rural homesteads, they're not ghost towns per se, but they are remnants of uh, a legacy of America. And it just really hit me hard. And I, I just wanted to bring that to you. And, and, and that's why we're, we're not done with this, too, because I'm going to bring up a I've been waiting for for take out, to take out this thread that we've been building on on uh, creepy moments in road trips, you know, small town stories, thing, which we can still roll into ghost town calls. And I was waiting. I was hoping for calls like this here, too, because it's not so much about. It's not so much about, you know, why everything went away. Uh, but it, it is also about trying to assess and trying to connect with the other things that are 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 always just like right there in front of you. Like when you talk about a, a framed picture, whenever I see those ghosts or, or even the malls, you know, when we talk about the zombie malls the other the other night, we have to talk about the the the, the mall memories again. Too many responses came in; they're still coming in. And I'm trying to rebuild up that that thread for another night, and it goes right into the ghost town stuff. The malls are so ghostly in themselves because this was, these were places that had so much human activity in it, real lives, people living, dying, growing exactly. up. You know. Exactly. And I live very close to Gary, Indiana. And, you know, you talk about ghost towns. This is a steel ghost town here. And I know people in Pennsylvania uh, and other places in the country that can uh, recognize the, uh, the abandonment of so much wonderful architecture and so many, uh, the great word that comes to me is legacy all the time that, you know, I see what people built and then had to abandon for whatever reason. And I'm seeing it now today. There's so much abandonment of, of legacies right now and it just breaks my heart i'm gonna let you go man i'm about to cry i'll let you go okay well hey just take it easy and i hope you have a great night and thank you for adding this to the show uh, and um I, and I, I feel you man i really do and i'll tell you I'll, I'll let him go and i know it's a it's an emotional thing because it's not even so much about one town that you you may not even be personally connected to it's that those towns wherever the hell they are it reminds you about what is fleeting for us. You know, the people in our lives that are getting older, you know, the, the older generations that are, are, are moving on to, uh, to into, I don't know, they're just, they're, they're, they're retiring. And uh, the younger ones that are coming up, the, the loss of innocence of youth and taking on the responsibilities and the complexities of adult life and, that is just it's these ghost towns are it's just so much like you this is why the liminal spaces spaces are so huge right now in certain parts of the internet now there's also a dying off i don't think that liminal space stuff where you have these empty malls the hallways the the burger king ball pits and all that stuff i don't think that the liminal space stuff is going to uh, would be as nearly as popular right now if culture in general, if if life and the expectancy of what we're getting out of life were uh, were so bad off, yeah, we were we, things have been so changed completely for us. A lot of it has to do with these big events, these big cultural shift events like JFK, nine eleven, 
um, th- those serve as, you know, watermarks along the way of how everybody is being corralled into new pens. Because it's not only about limiting where you can go and how you can fly and what observation decks on what uh, on on what skyscraper you can go up with and where you can bring a backpack. Uh, it's uh, it's more so it, that quickly morphed into what you can say, what you can think, how you can parent. It uh, it's all on the same timeline, and I understand. I understand about you know wanting to claw back to to simpler times and. And and wishing that we could either uh, go and recapture a little of that a little bit of that magic, or go back in time to warn everybody, to say be damned with the hey, don't go back in time and talk to anybody. You'll create a paradox. Fuck the paradox. I'd like to go back in time and uh, you know start screaming. Would anybody think anything of us? Would they would they heed the warnings? I don't know. But um, but the same thing with those towns, like with the with the the, the malls. And then we'll go on and take some more calls. With the malls, the thing that really gets me is that you look at any of these people on YouTube that are going and examining malls that have shut down. And they're going into Foot Locker or they're going into somewhere else. And there's still gumballs in the gumball machine from like 10 years ago. You know, the... the uh, there's the, the the security room still has all of the security television sets there, and you can see the grid of all of the boxes, the the box grids in the um, on the television screens of all the different screens and all the different camera angles from all over the mall that have been burned into the into the screen themselves. You can still see the images of what would have been a walkway that was just teeming with people at one point. That there's work schedules all over the place. It's the it's the fact that some of these places just seem like everybody's been raptured. You know, it's not that a business closed down and what was viable in there was sold off and everything else was thrown away and it was cleaned up and you stripped the walls down and you put a for lease sign on the front of it. It seems that so so many of these places, especially ghost towns, it seems like people were just raptured. You know? Uh they're gone, but they're, you left behind pictures? You left behind, like, it's so weird to see what is left behind. Like, what was that last day like that they were all in that house, that these stuff, that these things have been left behind? And what had the last few generations of people been like? It's just so weird. And And, there's, and those are the stories that I'm really interested in hearing about. I really am. Um, all right, uh, let's see, let's see, let's see, let's see. Let's see. we'll take one or two, one more call because I, I need at least fifteen minutes to do the the James O'Keefe thing, or else I got to save it for another night, and I don't have that much uh, time for the rest of the week. Here we go. Three one five. You're on the air. Who's this? Hi, this is Karen. Hi, Karen. And who's this? This is Frank. How are oh, you doing? I'm doing well, Karen. What's on your mind tonight? Well, um, I just um, had this aha moment once mm-hmm. about JFK Jr. Now, we, you know, we, it's known that he was obsessed with finding out who killed his father. Mm-hmm. 
I remember the day that he uh, presented his new magazine. And I think he gave a speech. And then they opened a curtain, and there on the top, in large letters of the front of the magazine, it said, George. And then it showed Cindy Crawford wearing like a George Washington kind of uniform to give you the impression it was George Washington he was referring to. Right. But I think he was referring to George Bush. I think he was revealing George Bush as one of the the individuals involved in uh, the uh, carrying out of the assassination. Now, that's my hunch. It's just a hunch I had. But, hey, you know, I think it's an interesting um, observation. Well, uh, it, it, and thank you for the call, Karen. I hope you have a wonderful night. That's it. And, and interesting in the fact that, well, it, it, I remember that, too, when it came out. Um I remember that I mean, we can get the, 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 the first page up here, too. I remember that. I remember the George Magazine first edition with Cindy Crawford and the, the wig, like the wig that we have at the studio. Um, so, yeah, it was a, kind of a, a tip of the cap to George Washington. If, if it was going to be a little bit more of a, of a hold on, George Magazine. George Magazine first cover. Where is she? Where are you? Daria goal. Let's see. Boom. Boom. There she is. So, um, if it, if it was going to be a little bit of a, I don't know, if I were JFK Jr. and I wanted to throw it all out there to, uh, it was George Bush. I would put him in a little bit of a comb over. I would make it look like George Bush. You know, and, and remember, this is also this is years after the the Bush administration is over. We're in Clinton territory right now, so I uh, I don't know, I don't know, anything's possible, I guess. But I'm sure that if JFK Jr. if John John were that obsessed with knowing about who the players were, what the motivations possibly were and why he was rooked of a father so young in life in such an unthinkable way. I find it very hard to believe that uh, that John Jr. Uh, was able to avoid the name George Herbert Walker Bush. I'm very So one way or another, you know if he was as, uh, as big of a student of history as we've been it, we, we've learned over the years, then there's no way that he avoided George Bush's name. No way in hell. All right, let's see here. Let's take um, one final call. 216, you're on the air. Go ahead. Hello, Frank. Hey, who's this? No, well, it's not, on uh, your chat, I'm the misbehaving Irish. Hey. You're my friend, so, so you can call me George. What's going on, my friend? Uh, nothing, uh, but uh, regarding the stories about uh, ghost malls or zombie malls, yeah, I, I got a little one for you. Okay, I'm in Cleveland, and uh, in all the city's wisdom, there's a a place over here in Garfield Heights, 
that's on top of a hill at the bottom of Canal Road on Granger Road. And it was always a landfill. And I worked as a garbage man for a little while. We'd go up there, we'd dump the track, garbage. And the bulldozer covered over and shit. And there was a stock racing track at the bottom of this hill, uh, Cloverleaf Raceway. And uh, we'd be there Friday nights watching the races and shit. But in all their wisdom, they built a mall on top of this, of this mountain, on top of this hill, right, right along the Cuyahoga Valley. And it was a nice place. And I'm a window and door installer, and I work for a, a door company, Advanced Door, and I was in this place constantly. And one day I wake up and I see on the news there's like, Five different communities have responded to an emergency at this mall. And I'm like, what the fuck? So I go to work and I get my work orders. And I was supposed to go over to Bed Bath & Beyond because I was always in the Walmart, Bed Bath & Beyond, wherever, working on their doors, all their, all their doors, electric doors. Well, they had gas leaks. Well, this, this whole mall was built on top of the landfill. And the whole mall was full of methane gas. Oh. And they, and they had to evacuate. Every, the, it is still dead to this day. Oh. I mean, all you got to all you got to do is go down Brook Park Road, Route 17, and you get to Canal Road, and you go up this half a mile hill to the top of the valley, and it's right there. I and thought, it, see, it, it, see, I thought you were going to tell me. I, I I didn't even expect gas uh, methane. Uh, as the conclusion but, here, I thought you were going but, to say that. But, but they, but they built the fucking thing on top of a landfill. They have posts on the sides of this hill, and you go by there some mornings because there's all industrial parks around there. You go by there some mornings. You got like pipes in the ground with flame shooting out to burn the gas off. And I've been in this place, and it is totally creepy, man. Totally crazy. I thought, it'll, it'll blow, I, here, here's it, where it, I thought. It here's, would blow your mind. Here's where I thought you were going with this, that they've built it on top of a landfill. Therefore, the found, like it, that, that there was going to be some kind of like a gigantic sinkhole or a, or a landslide because they weren't, uh, you know, they're essentially building on top of garbage and nothing a little bit more steady and firm. It, so, exactly. Yeah. And the guy that was in charge of it, his name's Jimmy DeMora. He was a... Anybody from Cleveland remember the story, him and his buddy Frank Russo. Jimmy DeMora was like the Democratic uh, big boss of this area. And they just ran through every building code, everything. And it is the worst eyesore in the Cuyahoga Valley outside of a lot of the other shit that actually is getting very, it's getting clean. Cleveland's a good town. But it is so hilarious. I'd go in there sometimes, and honest to God, uh, maintenance men would come up to me, and if I was inside, if I was working on the outside perimeter of the building on a steel door, or whatever I was doing, you know, locks and securing the place. Yeah. But sometimes I'd have to go on the inside, and they would give me like brand new packs of brass drill bits. So when I was drilling through steel, I wasn't picking up a spark, and it, it, it's just bizarre well well listen i i I appreciate i appreciate this one that is one way uh that's one way i mean thank you for the call that is one way of making a mall go out of business before you can even really have a uh, a chance to to take off perhaps it wouldn't be a ghost mall if it weren't be the fact that you you built it on tops of on top of 
however many metric tons of gas-emitting garbage. Oh, crazy. Well, that's what we have. That's what we have to deal with these days. Thank you, contractors. Here's something I want to leave with. James O'Keefe. James O'Keefe, last night he pretty much told everybody that he was not suicidal. I said, oh, what is tomorrow going to bring? This is what tomorrow brought. A top White House cyber official tells O'Keefe in disguise a pair of glasses. They can't say it publicly. The White House wants to replace Kamala Harris and confirms President Joe Biden's mental decline. Biden is definitely slowing down, he said. I'm just telling you what I've heard. They're really concerned about it. I think they need to get rid of him or her. Well, we were talking about this in 2021. Uh, however, they're gonna, they were going to force these, these two doofuses into the White House is one thing. They're going to LARP their way into the White House. They are going to fulfill all of the, the Ukraine meddling prophecies about Donald Trump really wanting to hinder Joe Biden by calling up Ukraine and inquiring about rampant corruption, bipartisan corruption at that, because Joe Biden was the chief political opponent that he had. All nonsense. And of course... They can make anybody president, so why not at least you know back up their alibi and, uh, and, and make him the president? But once he's in there, what are you going to do, we asked, because this guy is obviously in severe mental decline and physical decline. We saw that in 2020. It was getting so bad, and he wasn't even campaigning back then. They did very select things, and he wasn't handling it well. Kamala Harris, a, a dumb twat who has no appeal to the public, for any group of voters, nobody gives a shit about her. So they slap these two together to make it seem like a match made in diversity heaven. And um, and the first thing we said was, because of Kamala Harris being there, you can't get rid of Joe Biden because then she's the president. So you have to find a way to replace her first. And we said that you would know that they're putting the me- the pedal to the metal once she is replaced because she is the first one that has to go because then whoever is replacing her will be the one that Joe Biden says I have to uh, I have to step away they have to be able to manage this they can't kill him off I I, I don't think it's it's good to do that I don't think so I think that for uh, purposes of of keeping people's hearts involved stepping away being noble about it and all that stuff. But you have to be able to pass it off to somebody who isn't completely repulsive and retarded. So him bringing up Kamala Harris as a a real um, priority makes a lot of sense because you can't get rid of one without getting rid of the other first. Um, don't let yeah, whatever. I won't say what I was going to say. Uh, but no one in modern. He said, uh, "I'm just telling you what I've heard. They're really concerned about it." They're really concerned about it. I think they need to get rid of him or her. But no one in modern history has ever said, like, we're not going to renominate the president for a second term. Why not? That's not the biggest thing in the world. Uh, the, the biggest thing in the world is them having to admit that Joe Biden is, is mentally incapacitated. And then having everybody wonder, how long did you know he was mentally incapacitated? Why have you been lying to us? You know, they, they, they know that they're lying about the situation that they're in right now. 
They know that they're lying, but right now there is the appearances of Joe Biden's doing the best that we've seen in generations. Like, you know, the real knuckle draggers on places like on the For You tab on Twitter, which is where Democrats hang out, group therapy. Um, They can't, they, 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 they need to be able to walk away from this while maintaining that, uh, maintaining that they've always been acting in good faith and assessing the the physical stature of Joe Biden. They've always been acting in good faith and assessing him. It's not, that's what they need to maintain. Everything is about maintaining lies, looking good, avoiding looking bad. It has nothing to do with truth and honesty and and any of that stuff. Which is why things in general just keep getting worse and worse for all of us. Charlie Crager. A cybersecurity policy analyst and foreign affairs desk officer in the executive office of the White House tells O'Keefe, quote, I had a meeting with Michelle Obama. Someone asked her, will you ever run for office? And she said, no, emphatically. She was like, quote, I've seen all this shit my husband had to go through, and that does not interest me. Here's another quote. Vice President Kamala Harris hemorrhages black staff. She can't keep black staff. They quit on her in mass. What is that all about? She will be the vice president nominee. There was a debate about removing her from the ticket, but sadly they didn't. She's not popular, but you can't remove the first black lady to be vice president for the goddamn presidential ticket. You see how how constricted you are when you just you need to 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 bow down at the author uh, the the altar of genitals and skin color. Like you just can't. We can't remove her. But nobody likes her, and she's stupid. Yes, but she's black. Oh, God, can you imagine living in that world? It's horrible. Horrible. And this is how they run everything that they control. And they want to control everything. She's not popular, but you can't remove the first black lady to be vice president from the goddamn presidential kit ticket. Like, what kind of message are you going to send to, like, African-American voters? People would be like, what the fuck? She's a woman, and she's multiracial. You know, think about, and, and I'm sure that there's plenty of black Americans out there who have been groomed into thinking that way, but they're unfortunate. They're unfortunate people, and I like to just stay focused on black Americans who aren't completely handicapped by that kind of psychological, you know, uh, you know, that, that kind of psychological pressure, that peer pressure, that, that, uh, you know, that, that grooming that has been the substitute for a proper education. I, I can't say focus on people that are that unfortunate. They may just not be able to be reached. But listen to this guy talk just for a little bit. It's the 13 minutes long. What time do we have? We got about seven minutes. We can listen to a little bit. The State Department and USAID. So when you say sec it's like security, like you're protecting... The networks of the federal agency. That you give all your information to. The mission is to protect yes. information. And we, sir, we, we are like the president's voice when we go into meetings in terms of discussing and, and promoting the president's priorities. Is he, is he gonna... I'm telling you, they gotta stop hiring horny gay guys. The, the nominee? Yes. And she will be the vice president nominee. Yeah, I don't... There was a debate about removing her from the ticket, but... 
sadly they didn't. She can't keep black staff. They quit on her in mass. But with him, I yeah, mean, I know. I know. He's got I know. dementia. Um, yeah, well, he's definitely slowing down. Well, they know that he has those issues. I think so. But they're not willing to say it. Shows it. And, they're not and willing to say correct. it publicly. And same thing but with Kamala Harris. She's not popular, but you can't remove the first black lady to be vice president from the goddamn presidential ticket. Like, I what see. kind of message are you going to send to, like, all the African-American voters? How would you spin that? You know, the, the unfortunate thing for him is that he's probably going to lose his job because he's not a black lesbian. If he were a black lesbian, he could have said all this and more, as long as he didn't offend the Jews, <laughs> and he would have kept his <laughs> kept his position. I mean, look at, uh, I don't know, anybody else. The fact that he's a white gay guy, he has to understand. But then again, he doesn't know he's being recorded. He thinks he's on a hot date with James O'Keefe in a pair of Clark Kent glasses. <laughs> you just got to realize... <laughs> You got to realize uh, your spot on the stack and do a bug sweep anytime you go out there for a date if you are working in government. People be like, what the fuck? Like, like she's a woman and she's multiracial. I think I think that they're really concerned about the department and USAID. So I, I like have recurring meetings with them where we talk about goals and we talk about, about the president's priorities and like how are they coming on certain executive order deliverables and like all of this kind of stuff. Charlie says he's responsible for protecting the networks of the federal agencies. So when you say sec it's like security, like you're protecting... The networks of the federal agencies you're that you give all your information to. That, that through commerce or...? Everyone, or, yeah. So you're commerce. protecting the networks. Yes. And I, but I'm not like sitting there coding. Yeah. I'm meeting with like the senior level decision makers and we're talking about problems. You're doing it at a senior like, level. Yeah. The so mission is to protect right. yes. information. So, I mean, hey, his very important job. Is it a necessary job? Sounds like a middleman to me. He's not actually doing the coding, but he's doing all the administrative work and all that. I don't know. So, yeah, this is a pretty big fish. This is a pretty big get. Those are pretty big statements. They're not very surprising for us. And, of course, um, people who have already pledged their their fealty to uh whatever the dnc puts up as a as a ticket they're going to be very complimentary of the so-called biden administration they're going to forgive whatever the hell comes out here they're going to rationalize this or they'll just ignore it and um yeah so i mean james o'keefe he continued continues to do his thing he continues to do his thing, and that's a, that's that's appreciated. But boy, boy, oh boy, uh, yeah, this goes on for thirteen more minutes. What I'll do is I'll put this into the the thing for tonight. Uh, I'll put this into the after hours programming. So the first thirteen minutes you can watch this together, and then we will. Um, and then I'll put up JFK to nine eleven. Maybe I don't know. It's so long. It's so long. Who the hell knows? I'm thinking about it. So, anywho, thank you guys and gals so much for watching. Let me get into those super chats, make sure I got everybody. Sean Joe, this is all on the gold pills. Thank you. Uh, Ali B, thank you. A bronze tier subscription. Sean Joe, C. Blanche, Boys Blanc, Q 
shook me all night long. God bless. Thank you. NX17. Donald Jeffries is always a great guest. Frank, I ordered my first bag of your coffee today. I hope you enjoy it. I really do. Tell me all about it, NX. Email me whenever you can. Frank at quitefrankly.tv. The Sentinel says nothing screams deep state fuckery louder than 70 plus years later. And we can't get the JFK files because national security. I know. I know. Everybody involved is dead, so all that is left is some bullshit the CIA is doing. All that's left is everything. That's the whole thing. It's not even necessarily the people involved that were pulling the triggers. It is the system that enveloped them, that protected them, that enabled them to do this and act with with uh, what they believe to be the proper authority, but is illegitimate authority. That's the whole thing. This is the reason why we don't get anything out of people. They call it sources and methods. They don't want anybody to know just how invasive what they're what they're doing. And it's one thing to uh, to have Lois Lerner come down on conservative groups at the IRS and make trouble for them, okay, and be very biased in that respect. It's one thing to do that. It's another thing to kill an American president. I mean that. That's it. You know, it, it doesn't it, it tell it, confirming for us in another 10 years from now. Yeah, that yes, George H.W. Bush did, in fact, have a hand in the JFK assassination and then became president himself later on down the line. That was kind of pushed into a pushed onto Reagan to, to become a little snake weasel, you know, appendage to Reagan. stuff stuff like that. That. Yeah, they can give us that confirmation down the line and everybody will go, huh, or, yeah, I, I figured. The, the, the real thing is the system. They don't want you to see the inner workings of the clock and how it works. Um, Thank you so much, Sentinel, for that. Paulie9363, thank you, Chai Possum. Love you, Frankie. Great show. I'm glad. I'm glad everybody out there uh, enjoyed themselves. Ray from NJ says, sound balance in the left ear or right ear is out of whack. It isn't normal. What is normal is one nut hangs lower than the other. Great night. Great interview, Frank. I'm sorry about that. I I'm going to figure this one out. I noticed it when I went live. As soon as I went live, I noticed it, and I said, this is not normal, but I didn't have time to re reboot anything. And it's the first time it's ever happened to me. So um, this never happened to me before. Thank you, Ray. Yes, I am Laura. Thank you so much for that lovely tip. I love you too, Laura. All right, that's all. I'll see you guys in a little bit. I hope you enjoy your evenings, and I'll put a little something up here for the after hours programming. And uh, and uh, for those of you who stick around, just give me about 10 minutes or so and refresh the page every once in a while, and you'll see we'll get kicked off in, due, in no time. No time flat. That's all for me. Good night, everybody. I'll catch you on the flip side. Quite frankly, is filmed before a live studio audience. And now, our super chatters to all of our wonderful friends in Gold Pill Land. And thank you to everybody on quitefranklysuperchat.com, where your generosity always reigns supreme. That's Yes, I Am Laura, Ray from NJ, and Jay Brits. I'm releasing the scratch in right now. And for those of you who are sticking around, I hope you enjoy the rest of your evening. All right, guys and gals, I'll see you tomorrow night for the Thursday evening edition with a return of Ashton Forbes to talk about kooky things like 
I don't know, suppressed advanced technology and something else. All right, goodbye. Okay, Chief, take him away. I'm going to go home and sleep with my wife.